you know a spot. But not just a spot. The spot. Actually, with the 2023 Nissan Frontier, you know a bunch of them. But the key to these great spots? Being able to reach them in the first place. Your spot is out there. Find your Frontier in the 2023 Nissan Frontier with standard 310 horsepower, advanced tech, and 281 pound-feet of torque. Black Tech Green Money isn't just about telling the stories of successful black entrepreneurs. It's also about giving actionable and wealth-building strategies that help you protect the future of our communities. That's why we're pleased to be supported by State Farm Insurance. State Farm also believes that we must invest in our communities to achieve economic growth by sponsoring programs like the AXO, which rewards high school students for their academic achievements. State Farm believes that being better neighbors creates better communities. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. My dad works in B2B marketing, but I never really knew what that meant. Then one day my dad came by my school for career day and told everyone in my class he was a big MQL man. Then he just kept saying things like, the more MQLs, the better, over and over. My friends still laugh at me to this day. I think it means marketing qualified lead. One thing's for sure. I'll be known as the MQL man's kid for the rest of my days. Why couldn't you just be a fireman or a lawyer? Why? You ruined my life, Dad. Not everyone gets B2B, but LinkedIn has the people who do. And with ads on LinkedIn, you'll be able to reach people based on job title, industry, likelihood to buy, and more. Start converting your B2B audience into high-quality leads today. We'll even give you $100 credit on your next ad campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash customer to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash customer. Terms and conditions apply. LinkedIn, the place to be, to be. Unicorns, an Afrotech digital series, August 2017. Anwar Bay-Taylor is the designer and runs Mind Traveler Design, an art and design studio that specializes in character and story development for video games and film. He's on the episode discussing the journey and hardships of being an entrepreneur. Take a listen to the gems he's dropping about strategy and timing. Entrepreneurship is, is just about believing in a vision, having a plan about what you want to create, and then talking to people about it while at the same time doing as much work as possible every day to bring it to fruition. Even in the darkest of times, the work that you're doing is progressing you, whether you realize it or not. Any day is an opportunity for a tremendous growth and breakthrough. You just have to like not give up. And so I, I believe that that is like a reoccurring thing. You know, things for me, they take time, but when they come out, they be popping. I'm Will Lucas, and this is Black Tech, Green Money. I'm going to introduce you to some of the biggest names, some of the brightest minds, and brilliant ideas. If you're black in building or simply using tech to secure your bag, this podcast is for you. Phaedra Ellis-Lampkins is a social justice advocate and CEO at Promise, which helps people avoid utility shutoffs, license revocations, sky-high interest rates, and even incarceration with flexible interest-free payment plans. She was also a union organizer and previously served as Prince's manager. And yes, the Prince you think I'm talking about. With a resume like hers, who knew one day she'd go on to run a fast-growing startup, which was backed by Y Combinator and renowned investors like Mark Andreessen. But I believe history gives us clues about our futures. How would Phaedra connect the dots from her work in social justice and music 
to successfully running a tech startup. I think most of my preparation came from um, really being uh, broke. <laughs> I think I say that because I think your life is shaped by your own experiences and how the world sees you. And so for me, some people I hear their amazing stories and they're like, and I felt, you know, triumphant. And, and unfortunately for me, I think I felt a lot of shame. I was in uh, programs with like really smart kids who had money and, and two parents and a lot of resources. And so for me, I felt a lot of shame, like being poor or, or whatever else. And so what that made me be clear is I didn't want that experience for other people. And so I had a little sister, I had uh, family as I got older, more family. And so most of my work has really been about um, making sure that people don't feel that the, the, the lack of dignity, the lack of um, respect for being poor, like what it means to get free. You know, when, when I was a kid, I had free lunch and they used to make you be in a different line for free lunch versus the people who paid for lunch. And so I just think like, I don't want that experience for anyone else. And so uh, my job is to create uh, anything I can so that we build dignity for uh, children and children of color and other people. That's what I, that's what I think that's what shaped me. That's what makes my, how I make decisions today is like, am I doing stuff that makes it better for people? You know, I'm sure we're going to talk about a lot of this today, but I, I'm, I'm wondering your response to, because your career has taken like this, long and winding road, you know, from the music industry, working with labor unions and, you know, social justice, and you're still doing a lot of that today. But I mean, what would you say you're an expert at? Like, what is it Phaedra is uniquely situated to do? Uh, I think I am an expert at uh, execution. I think that I figure out how to do zero to one how to make what I think feels impossible possible. Um, and so that's what I think, whether in any place I've been, it's usually been starting a project or starting something that was from scratch and making it uh, compelling and making it work. I think I am a zero to one person and that's what my strength is. You know, there's so many people from communities that, you know, I would imagine you and I come from um, who are not in like native technology industries, but perhaps leverage technology. And, um, but if they leaned in technology might allow them to do their work at scale, you know, if they considered it. So talk about the journey or, or more so the hand to hand combat of social justice that you performed like union organizing, yeah. you know, the personal work you did with Prince and running an anti-poverty organization to then finding ways to leverage technology to amplify the opportunity you had to do your work. Yeah. Uh, well, one, I think everything we do is technology. And I think we've just been trained to think that because we don't use the same words, because we didn't go to the same schools, that, we, that something is flawed with us instead of that technology as a whole is created and structured by mostly dudes whose parents support them who have the luxury of uh, failing, of creating. So one thing I just think about is all of us do technology, whether it's in our cars, on our phones, or things like that. Um, and two is I think that the technology is fundamentally something that should make the world better. And there's just not a lot of models. Because if you think about it as scale, right, it really is taking an individual and something experience and figuring out what do you do over and over again and how to use technology to make it more effective or to automate it. And so it just happens that the people that are creating it are mostly thinking about, you know, when I was 
running revenue, it was people were thinking about how do we have dog walking? Because that's what they cared about. How do I have a taxi after I get out of the club? How do I have valet parking? Because those were the problems for them. And so I think we have an obligation to figure out how do we use technology to solve the problems for our own communities. And um, I just think if you look at kind of what culture has done, if you look at music, it's like, unfortunately, it really is creators creating content and then tech technology being in a way to devalue our content. And so the real question is, how do we own the, own the platforms that devalue our own creations as a community? And so I think the, the question is not just a technology, it's a question of ownership. How do we own what we create? So do you think we're asking ourselves the wrong question in too many instances with regards to whether, let's say I work in law and I don't see a lane for myself in technology, um, that maybe my premise is off and that there is something here that if, if used properly could help me do what I do, but perhaps for, you know, hundreds or thousands of more people with the same amount of output. Yeah. I mean, absolutely. I think if, if someone I knew was in law, I would be clear. I would say, you know, how is technology impacting you today? It impacts the way you look for research. It impacts the way you find people and to be clear that figuring out how people get access and they can actually handle themselves, whether it's in civil court or small claims court, that we want to be able to help people have those tools. And so I think we, it's not just, we have to understand it. I think we have an obligation, right? We have an obligation to figure out how do we use the, one of the greatest potential tools for change, for the change that we seek and the things that we believe in. So I wouldn't just say, that for my friends or people that are, I have an amazing friend right now who's in philanthropy and I just said, you have to go into tech, even if it is a function of being uh, someone running a foundation, the idea that you would just be an investor of hundreds of millions of dollars and not think about how that money is used, how technology has an impact on folks would be an incredible shame. And so I think every person is impacted by it. Every person will see it. And we have to figure out how do we use those opportunities as uh, leverage for change. You know, there's, there's this conversation that happens in our social discourse from time to time. And it talks about, you know, the sentiment that technology replaces jobs and often displaces workers. And that's not necessarily wholly untrue. Um, but I wonder, how do you view the landscape of technology through that lens? Uh, I think that technology is the future. Um and uh, in my experience, like I've been, I've been involved in technology in a couple different ways. One, I used to be at a labor federation, which is a local, you know, labor unions, and technology was horrific for working people. I was in San Jose, and what it meant is that everyone used to work for the company, right? Like if I worked at a company, the janitor worked at the company, the receptionist, like all of those were employees of the company. And what shifted is instead of being employees, they started outsourcing everything that wasn't engineering or technical, right? Food service, uh, janitorial. And so that meant as a consequence, all of a sudden those jobs didn't have benefits. They paid less because you put someone in the middle of the interaction, right? So instead of playing the employee directly, you paid a middle person who had to make profit and profit could only come from two places, you know, making it more expensive or paying someone. And the consequence was always paying someone less because they couldn't charge more and or the companies were, were doing it as a cost reduction. And so so for me, technology was harmful and, you know, because it was for working people. The consequence of kind of a group of people making a lot of money was that a lot of people didn't. And 
And all of a sudden, people who were doing honorable work were not considered a core of the firm. And those were mostly black and brown people and women. And so all of a sudden, the work uh, was less valued. And so I think in technology, uh, in the labor movement, I saw that. I think when I went uh, to nonprofit work, I saw that in the even things like solar, the devaluing of innovation, the devaluing of the work that would have been kind of the people I knew and grew up with would have been their jobs. They used to be higher paying, good jobs. All of a sudden those were less paying jobs. When we look at factories, right? The difference of working at a GM versus working at Tesla. Tesla was hiring out of, right, temp agencies, right? Versus kind of jobs with benefits and a pension. And so we saw the consequences. And then I think when I was in music, I saw it as all of these amazing, mostly black creators and watching people who had created legacy catalogs and their content being devalued by companies like Spotify and which record companies owned part of it, right? So all of a sudden you had record companies having streaming services devaluing the price of the content. And so ultimately it devalued the contribution. And so uh, I think technology, we should be clear, is something that is happening, and but it is devaluing our community, it's devaluing our worth and, and using us to grow it, right? And music to me is, is the best example. State Farm Insurance gets it. Representation alone doesn't equate to authenticity. State Farm understands and wants to help protect our communities by investing in our future, building off the hard work our parents have done before us. We all are looking to create generational wealth so that our families and generations behind us have a better starting point than we did. That begins with financial literacy. State Farm helps fund programs like Project Ready, a National Urban League program committed to the educational achievement of Black and Brown youth. To date, participants have been awarded over $11 million in scholarships offers as a direct result of contributions from State Farm. At Eating Wallbrook, we hear inspiring rags-to-riches stories on each episode from our guests, but with State Farm, you can begin to write your own success story. State Farm believes that being better neighbors creates better communities and have a long-lasting impact. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. All right, so there we were, cruising through the new open-air zoo, when I realized that the park was closing in like 15 minutes. Luckily, we were in my Nissan Rogue. With its powerful VC turbo engine, well, we had time to see all the animals. Whoa! <laughs> and outrun a few! Drive the Nissan Rogue. How do we level the playing field for all entrepreneurs? 55% of white businesses survive the startup phase, while only 4% of black businesses do the same. So I want every black entrepreneur to know about the 1 Million Black Businesses Initiative. The 1 Million Black Businesses Initiative is an award-winning program created by Shopify and Operation Hope. They're on a mission to start, grow, and scale 1 million black businesses by 2030, driving wealth creation for the black community. Out of 6 million employer-owned businesses in the U.S., only 2.3% have black ownership. This program gives black entrepreneurs tools and resources to level the playing field. From free business coaching to tailored training and extended free Shopify trial. Shopify's made a 10-year, multi-million dollar commitment to the program, and it's working. The initiative already started, supported, and engaged with over 334,000 black businesses, helping them operate businesses that sell anything from skateboards to coffee beans to apparel. Business owners love this program. Simone Harvin, founder of SC Creative Group, says, The 1 million black businesses experience for me 
was unlike any other program I've been a part of, primarily because it was for us and it was by us. Here at Drink Champs, we are always interacting with our listeners, many being black entrepreneurs. Shopify is one of those platforms that empowers and emboldens entrepreneurship. So chart your own path for business success with the 1 Million Black Businesses Initiative and Shopify. Bring your business to Shopify with an exclusive offer at shopify.com slash B-E-N, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash B-E-N. So, all right, so this is super interesting to me. So let's go in there. So you talk about how uh, we get devalued on these platforms, and it's not so much that um, there is no value or, you know, our value is discounted. We're just not allowed to participate in the value. So, you know, in that way, uh, we get taken advantage of. So music is a great, you know, example. But also if I'm on TikTok and I create a dance, you know, they're not making sure that my video, my TikTok clip that got millions of views, you know, that I enjoy the reward of that. But they take advantage of it because they own the platform. How do you reconcile that with the same idea that we don't always see ourselves as platform creators, but we see ourselves as creators? And how do we change that narrative? Thank you. Yeah. One thing is, I think we just have to um, build the language of ownership, which is and, and mu- what music taught me is I would see like we got a one million dollar contract and then you would look at the details and it was like three albums. The first album, you get $10,000 and you own uh, no percentage of uh, revenue. You just have royalties after you pay the company back. And then you're really, if you're, you only have a right to go to contract two if you're successful. And then you're successful now, but you took the deal under contract one thinking a million dollars was a lot of money. And so one thing I think that's really important for us to do is talk about language and to talk about ownership because I think we're not, teaching people teaching especially like i think about the kids my kids is when i think about what they're like oh, i want to be a musician i want to do this like it changes day to day who wants who wants to do what though they are the most amazing children is my job is to make them want to own and, and is to make them think about how do they control those things so that they are in a position and how do they create things that make their life easier instead of um uh wanting to use someone else's tools and i think we should just be clear that the tools uh, are, you know, like it's it's great because some of those things help organize and do other things, but we should be clear, they're not going to build generational wealth. They are going to operate in ways that don't have us at the core. And so we have to, like, we have to have more Black people. We have to have more Brown people creating technology because if we don't, we will always, it will always be happening to us instead of happening because of us or happening based on the conditions we want. And, um, and that to me is the opportunity is to, is your right to use platforms. And so that we can say these platforms should be owned and designed by us so that it's natural. Like I think when we look at payment processors, like we do payments as a company and the payment processors are basically built for rich people. So it's like, if you want to do zero financing for Peloton, you're good. If you're a poor person who can't pay child support or a parking ticket, you got to come in the office. You got to bring your taxes to prove you're poor to pay them back. So you have to prove you're broke. So you have to take time off. You have to pay for parking. You have to go in. And then if you pay every month, the second you miss a payment, you fail and you face consequences. Where if you're wealthy buying a Peloton, they're like, you got six months. Take all the time you need. 
and enjoyed the Peloton in the meantime. Something is structurally wrong because the people that are creating the products are thinking about themselves. So I, you know, I. Um, so let's talk about that. Uh, is I is think it because about right? Is it because that we are in some rooms considered second class or secondary that you know we get yeah. taken advantage of in these ways, or is it just we're not in the, at the table at all? in so many instances where these sorts of decisions get made that impact us in such negative ways? Uh, I think it is all of the above. I think um, we had an incredible engineer who I liked a lot and he and I were talking and I said, okay, so when someone gets paid, we got to make sure they can be able to take money out in the morning. And he said something to me that was really interesting, which he says, why does it matter if we take money in the morning or the afternoon? And I said, because when someone gets paid, their money could be gone by the afternoon. And he said to me, how could someone's money be gone by the afternoon of the day they got paid? And I realized his experience was such that like I grew up where money was gone before you got paid. So it was like you got paid, but you you knew you knew what the check where the check was going and you probably had a deficit post the check. And I um, realized that the people who are building it, it doesn't occur to them that you could get paid and not have money the day you get paid. And so the system is being designed and then it harms us because we we don't it, whatever your person's reality is if you don't have money you fail and there's no ability to be able to make it like if so for example if we had built a system that way where if a ticket is due and you don't pay it in the morning then you would fail and you would face the consequences in some states it's incarceration it's a you know like and you don't pay child support you lose your driver's license what's it like to not have a driver's license and so the reality is we have to build systems that by by and for people that recognize the reality is that most people m more and more people are going to be in a place where when they get paid um that money is gone before they get paid and so the system should be built that way you know there was a quote i found uh, where you said i went into tech to understand it right and now that you're running a highly successful tech company what did you come to understand about tech? Um, uh, what did I come to understand? Well, we we just raised a half a billion valuation, so I feel good oh. about that. So okay. Like the company is doing good. The company's doing I great. Like uh, we never announced stuff. I'm like, shoot, that's a good thing. Yeah. Uh, 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 I I think what I realized is a couple things. One is I never was around people who got to fail, and it's just an incredible thing of privilege to fail and adapt. And, um, and so it's just like, oh, the product doesn't work. Oh, that's, that's no reflection of you. <laughs> you should just adapt <laughs> and learn. And yeah. I was like, wait, yeah, iterate, iterate. I was like, right. I went to Cal state Northridge. I didn't go to anywhere where they were like fail. I was like, you know, so I was like, oh, got it. You fail and iterate. Okay, cool. Um, and so the, I think one thing I just learned is that some people grew up with so much privilege that they were taught that failure could breed success instead of that failure was failure. And so the thing that has been most striking to me about tech is that it is a space in which uh, I worked at a company that uh, I'm on the board of now called Honor. And I never had been around like people who went to Stanford and they were just like, oh, we fail, cool, move on. And I was like, oh, okay, we failed, cool, move on. I just was like, oh, that's okay, cool. <laughs> this is good. Yeah, uh, that's, that's new. It's new, right? <laughs> it's new, like it's a part of growth. And I was like, oh, cool, okay. So so I think what I learned is uh, failure. I also learned that everything was built by people for themselves. 
the best time will be like, oh, go solve a problem you care about. Well, when it's most young dudes who have parents who support them, then all the solutions are their problems, not our problems. And so I learned that apps know people who experience the things that, that I care about, that we care about, the people we grew up care about, all the solutions are going to be for the, those people, right? And it was the first place where I'd ever been where people were like, oh, we went to boarding school together. Then we all went to college together. Then we, and I'd never even heard people talk about where they went to college, except for college football as an adult. I was like, wait, we talk about where we went to college? I was like, wait, wait, what? Wait, okay, cool. And um, and so I think the thing I the thing I did learn that I was not good at before is is I didn't have skills. Like I hadn't been taught scale. I, you know, I studied politics at Cal State Northridge. So no one taught me, you know, language. Like I would say, go get this instead of language that would allow technology to be built on it. Get the uh, some, get the uh, bottle of uh, juice on the table so you can pick it up. You know, my my language wasn't specific enough, and um, and so I also just had to learn that there were people who were being prepared for the future, and I had not been. I had not like done the work. It, uh, so that's a lot about what I think about is how do I prepare for the future? And then as I think about building a company, how do, how do you hire a company that looks like the community you want to build solutions for and also figures out how do you figure out what's the new pattern, right? If the pattern isn't people who went to Stanford Business School, then went worked at McKinsey, then did a stint at Google and operations, and now you hire, what does that pattern look like? Yeah. So, so put on your futures hat. I'm going to ask you to put on your futures hat for a second. And I wonder um, what your thoughts are on what the future looks like at this trajectory. If you, if you take the PayPal's of the world, the cash apps of the world who build, you know, these founders build software for problems that they had or problems that they saw in the world, you know, around their peer group, but they may not necessarily take into account the situation, the plight, the struggle of that person who's in the city, you know, in poverty or et cetera, who to your earlier point, like by the time the check comes on Friday, the money's already spent. So these people who are building these platforms, particularly FinTech platforms, um, don't necessarily have that first hand experience of dealing with these things. So if at the current trajectory, if, if there is no intervention, if there is no, you know, come to Jesus moment, around technology and finance, what does the future look like with regards to wealth generation, um, with regards to economic opportunity, educational opportunity, um, if if this doesn't get solved? Well, one is we have to realize that the tools of the future are in some ways worse than the tools of the past, right? Because what's different is it looks appealing, right? Like we're getting out of payday loans, but now you can pay a fee per month and you can borrow money ahead of your paycheck and but you're paying a really high interest rate right i don't notice that you're paying a really high interest rate and and it seems great right and also they're in your bank account selling your information to people about what you're spending and how you're doing it and so one is i think if you think about the loss of privacy if you think about the com commodify like commodifying right someone's personal information and um and then i just think about the systems right that it doesn't so like our product, we only do interest free because I think people should think that the same way that rich people get it, working people should get it. Why does Pel why if I buy a Peloton, do I get it interest free? 
But if I need it, if I actually need it, I don't get an interest free. I have to pay 35% interest. And so if the business model is fixable for wealthy folks, the business model, model should be fixable for others. And so I just think if we don't start to both have clear demands and, and also start to understand non-predatory models for business. Like, I think the practical problem is like, is I don't, there's amazing people running nonprofits anymore. I don't, that's not the strategy that, that I'm trying to do. Cause I think the system I'm best capable of changing is now a, the scaled system in private capital. But I, it's so hard because every model, like when we were doing payments, people said you should do lending. And we just couldn't figure out the economics of lending in, in a way that isn't predatory. Because even if you borrow at 12%, if I loan it to you over three months, you're at 30, you're in 30s in the in interest, which is unfair for small short-term loans is to pay that level of interest. And so I just think that part of the failure for us that I have to get okay with is that we don't have a model in terms of how do you build products for poor people in a profitable, scalable way that does not exploit people or is not predatory in nature. And when I say like, hey, we need to figure this out, people will be like, Ben and Jerry's. I'm like, that can't be the model. <laughs> Even though they're amazing and I love their ice cream, we we have to have better models than like yogurt and Ben and Jerry's. Uh, and, I, and I think financial services are gonna be critical because the idea like that the stuff that you talked about, one, not owned by black people, not owned by brown people, not led by black or brown people, and um, that the wave of the future for people who don't have bank accounts is we're teaching them predatory ways is problematic. So one of the largest funding rounds um, raised by a black woman led startup ever. Thank um, you. And Thank you. Yeah, we just raised more. Uh, you just raised more? No, uh -uh, we just raised more. Oh, well, let's talk Someone about it. it. No, let's talk about it. <laughs> I should just, we just, we raised like 90 days after our first raise because people came back. And so, 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 so we have raised more at a higher valuation. It just, we're just underwater in execution. So we haven't announced, but, but uh, yeah, we raised uh, more. Uh, yeah. See, you say for me, nobody's listening. <laughs> nobody's listening. It's just you and me. And what is it? I have to say this. <laughs> the thing that's scary, right. Is as a black woman, um, raising this much capital, especially to try to do good, the pressure is one is I, I want to do right by my, my people. I want to, and, um, and I, it's like, right. It's like, I don't want to fail, but I also want to build something that hasn't been built before. And it's just, I feel really honored and excited and privileged, but also I'm scared every day. <laughs> it's just yeah. scared every day. Well, let's talk about that because I want to make yeah. sure you're not the last one, the last black woman to have, uh, you know, something this significant in your company. So we know that racism and sexism exists, you know, in the constructs of venture capital. And but how have you recognized or have you recognized other factors outside of that that may lead black people, black women um, to not getting funded at meaningful levels? Uh, yeah, I mean, I think one thing that is uh striking continues to be striking to me is uh the presumption of what we have to do versus someone else like even if you look at these rounds where someone just comes up with an idea and they get a lot of money i don't i don't see a lot of 
black women getting that opportunity. And I think part of it is because uh, venture capital is uh, a bunch of, you know, mostly men who find people who are like them that look like the patterns that they recognize. What's crazy is it mostly fails. So at some point you would think venture capital would say, you know, we're, we only win 0.5% of the time, <laughs> 1% of the time. It's just that the win is so big that you don't care that you lose 99% of the time. And so, um, so one is it's, that's been interesting. Um, you know, we have, uh, had to make the decision that some investors weren't the right investors for us because, you know, when we were doing the criminal justice, people would say things to me like, uh, what kind of crimes do you work with people who've been like, uh, as though there's a deserving and a non-deserving or, uh, you know, how do you, you know, what are the consequences? And those were not my people. They'll never be our people. And so I think, I think racism is real. I think sexism is real. Um, and I think, uh, I also think class is something we don't talk a lot about, right? Like the assumption, if you went to certain schools, if you, and I just think the economic reality, at least where I grew up is I couldn't, one, I went to God into Stanford. So we should just be really clear about where I was is I went to God into Stanford, but is, uh, two is I, cause I wouldn't even occur to me that that was an aspiration. Cause I could never afford it. Right. I had student loans going to a state school. So it wouldn't have even, it wasn't even in my world. And so I think it's also important that we acknowledge, and that's why we have to create our own tools, but. I, I think it's just, they're not our people, right? It's like when you go in, when you meet with folks that, and I think that's why like Michael Seibel is so important at YC. I think figuring out who's Stephen DeBerry, I think who are the investors that are creating space and place and working with them are really critical. State Farm Insurance gets it. Representation alone doesn't equate to authenticity. State Farm understands and wants to help protect our communities by investing in our future building off the hard work our parents have done before us. We all are looking to create generational wealth so that our families and generations behind us have a better starting point than we did. That begins with financial literacy. State Farm helps fund programs like Project Ready, a National Urban League program committed to the educational achievement of Black and Brown youth. To date, participants have been awarded over $11 million in scholarships offers as a direct result of contributions from State Farm. At Eating Wallbrook, we hear inspiring rags-to-riches stories on each episode from our guests, but with State Farm, you can begin to write your own success story. State Farm believes that being better neighbors creates better communities and have a long-lasting impact. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. All right, so there we were, cruising through the new open-air zoo, when I realized that the park was closing in like 15 minutes. Luckily, we were in my Nissan Rogue. With its powerful VC turbo engine, well, we had time to see all the animals. Whoa! <laughs> and outrun a few! Drive the Nissan Rogue. My dad works in B2B marketing, but I never really knew what that meant. Then one day, my dad came by my school for career day and told everyone in my class he was a big MQL man. Then he just kept saying things like, the more MQLs, the better, over and over. My friends still laugh at me to this day. I think it means marketing qualified lead. One thing's for sure. I'll be known as the MQL man's kid for the rest of my days. Why couldn't you just be a fireman or a lawyer? 
Why? You ruined my life, Dad. Not everyone gets B2B, but LinkedIn has the people who do. And with ads on LinkedIn, you'll be able to reach people based on job title, industry, likelihood to buy, and more. Start converting your B2B audience into high-quality leads today. We'll even give you $100 credit on your next ad campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash customer to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash customer. Terms and conditions apply. LinkedIn, the place to be, to be. You know, I was reading, you know, your story and you talked about when you got into YC, uh, the first time you said, I went into YC, I felt a hundred years old uh, because (laughs) I I came in the minivan (laughs) and had to go pick up my kids after the YC interview. I was like an out of space. It was like a bunch of 20 year old dudes talking literally about freezing their brains. And And they all were like, here's my product. And they're like, do you have a product? And I was like, I don't even have an engineer. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. yeah. I mean, but look, let's talk, but let's talk about that because I mean, what have you learned? What have you learned then about selling an idea with nothing to show Uh other than, because I would imagine in some of these instances, you've used your resume to, to get you in the door. One is, I think because I ran revenue at my last company, I went to to run operations and I ended up running revenue. I think, and Mark Andreessen is the largest investor. So I think having, and and it just happens, I'd only been in one tech company and it did well and I was an, and I became an exec. And so I think that gave me credibility that probably something else might have. Like if I jumped in the wrong company, then it wouldn't have probably uh, been, it wouldn't have, it wouldn't have market signaled that I had credibility, I think, in terms of the capacity for the company to do well. Um, and so one is I, I never, I, I had a privilege that most people don't. Um, and so I'm, I'm really aware of that. Um, but when I went to places like YC, I'm literally, people would ask me if I was lost. People always thought I worked there. Other people ask me, they would be like, and when I sat there, they didn't, people didn't even want to, I don't think, we, Michael is like literally a beloved, but like, we didn't make a lot of friends there. It's, I hear people be like the best part of YC. I, uh, it is like the community. It's Michael. It's the people I've met, like Ruben, who did career karma, who's in there now. I just, it's, I see the evolution. It's Rose, um, who did Emerleaf. But, um, at the time, literally we came in in jeans. I came in in jeans. I'd never I thought Michael was YC. I don't, that guy, yeah. whoever the guy is who, Graham, Paul Graham, I yeah, never heard of him. And yeah, and so I went there like, th- I thought this is the thing that the black man runs. So I got to <laughs> go do this thing. So I went there because I thought, I was like, this this is where the black people go. Yeah, yeah, and yeah, so yeah. Then I think that. I, right, I only knew Michael. So I was like, this, this is, this is, this is, I, he was the only black venture uh, capitalist I'd ever seen. So I was like, this, I got to go support this. Cause people are like, you don't need YC, you'll be able to raise. I was like, no, I'm going to this thing. And then I got there and it was a bunch of like young white men who were staring at us. And, and then they were like, sh- literally this guy's like, so we're going to freeze brains so that people after they die. And I was like, oh, you know, cool. And then I was like, they're like, what are you going to do? And I said, well, I, I want to figure out how we scale um, solutions for people so they don't end up incarcerated. And he was like, oh. It, uh, what, what are you going to do is you're going to help people in jail. And I was like, Oh, we want to help people stay out of jail or get out of jail. And he was like, Oh, and so they, people just, as they were talking to us, made a decision that we were clearly not players. Um, and so, uh, it was, it was just fascinating. And then 
of course, we'd given the wrong phone number, so we never got a call that night from Michael. So I was like, not only did we not make it, they don't even care enough to tell us that we didn't make it. <laughs> but you didn't, well, you didn't give them the right phone number. Yeah. But I didn't give them the wrong phone number. So, and, you know, I was like, let me give you feedback. You don't even call people. And then it was like, oh, actually, you put the wrong phone number. I was like, yeah. The one thing I guess is interesting is I do think that in some ways it was better because we didn't know. And so we launched on Hacker, whatever the hacker thing, Hacker News, where you launch. And like, I, I was like, who are these people? <laughs> what are we doing? So I, I actually think it made it, it made it easier because we didn't give it the same esteem, I think, that someone else might have. So it's one thing to start a business that has supreme value for your end user. But, you know, when you have this dual sided ecosystem, you you don't just need the customers. You need the partners to be able to you know buy into what you're doing so that you can leverage, you know, their systems to the benefit of your end user. And so how did you navigate you know, working, you know, getting the buy-in of institutions, governments, utility companies to be able to say, look, I have something that is of value mm -hmm. um, and you should do business with us. Um, yeah. So our product is basically interest-free installment plans for government debt. And so uh, because of COVID, a lot of people couldn't pay their bills. And so you have back debt. We started with those interest-free installment plans for government because government doesn't have a lot of flexibility, right? It's just built like you you owe it this day. If you fail, you fail. And part of that is that it's built on legacy systems like Oracle or others. So like the software just says, if you don't make the payment on Friday, you fail in the payment. And, um, and so that was the opportunity. And then we started to realize that people qualified for support from the government, but that a lot of it was dependent on your taxes. And so we said, why don't we try something called self-attestation, which is where you can say, I qualify and then retain the right to audit if we need to come back and get information. But you shouldn't, it doesn't make sense that you have to do a lot of work that the government says, fill out all this paperwork so you can get money to pay us. It's like I, we said to our clients, why do you make it difficult for people to pay you? They don't get the money, like they're paying you. You should make it easy. And so the thing I think that we've been able to demonstrate, and there was a case study done in our, in our work in Louisville as an example, is that because we build systems that I assume someone doesn't want their water shut off. I assume that someone doesn't want to go to jail. I, so if they fail in the payment, it's because I think they don't have the money, not because they don't want to pay. And most payment systems are built punitive. If you don't pay, it's because you don't want to pay. So you need to face consequences. So the difference is like if people fail in our system, most people make the payment within two weeks. So why would we charge a late fee? If the issue is you just need two weeks, then what we should do is like for our software is you can just ask for a two week request. You don't need to talk to someone. It's automated. And so that's the system stuff. And I think what we've been able to show to governments is like you have people who are in debt that now have a 93% of repayment and we don't have a consequence. We don't have a collections. We don't have a get something shut off. The worst thing that happens is we send you back to the uh, government. And so being able to demonstrate that you can get a higher rate of repayment with giving people more flexibility, access to easier um, uh, help, I think it's just been the data and analytics that it actually makes more sense for the government. And so um, it's been pretty uh, exciting. We're just about to launch in Toledo and Buffalo's getting voted yeah, on tomorrow. I'm from Toledo. Uh, and so it's, you're from Toledo? Yeah, uh, born and raised in Toledo. I, I know Toledo now. We're launching in Toledo. There you go. One. I dig it. I dig it. I dig it. Yeah, yeah.
Yeah, we're on Logic. And there we're doing payment plans, but also um, uh, you'll be able to do amnesty and debt relief so that if you make certain on-time payments and just forgive some of your debt. Right on, right on. You know, when we start a business, um, we're very often personally passionate about the mission. Um, but business is business, and sometimes we need to pivot, right? And, and you went through this. How do you advise we process business objectives being switched up in order to thrive when you got in it for, you know, probably a very personal, personally meaningful objective, but you find yourself in this position where you got to pivot? Yeah, um, we did a pivot. We were focused on the criminal justice system. And um, I just uh, decided I didn't like our, not, I liked the clients that we had as we thought about growth. Uh, I realized that the clients that we were talking to were not people I wanted to help uh, be more efficient. And the reality is, even if you have good intentions, like I realized we were in a state that shall remain nameless and sitting with them, they were bragging about keeping someone in a pretrial arrest for seven years on a marijuana arrest. So keeping someone incarcerated for seven years for a pretrial, so they hadn't even been convicted. And I was like, anything we do that makes this system more efficient is harmful to our folks even if we think it's good in the moment. And so I just was like, we can't do this. And I was petrified because I, I had to call our investors and say, I don't wanna do this anymore because I think it's harmful to the world and I can't sleep at night. And um, I worried that as a black woman who'd raised capital, I was gonna set other people back because other black pe people were gonna say, see black women, they can't be focused on business. They care about their emotions that, um, and uh, people had had critiques of us before that I think were right, that we're just, uh, this, that the system is so broken that, the, and, and for me, from a business perspective, the scale, we could have built a consulting business, but we never could have built a venture scale business. And so I had to reframe the discussion, I realized, as there is not a venture scale business unless we become exploiters. And that was just not who we were um, wanted to be. And so we made a decision that, we wanted to be able to build a company that helped fit. Like we said, how do people end up in jail? And the thing we saw is the people who are most likely or what's called a failure to appear, which is how you uh, gauge like who's least likely to show up for court were people on suspended driver's licenses. And the reason is because they work, they got it. They got their, you get your license suspended mostly because you, you're, you're poor, right? You can't afford something. It's not people who've committed some egregious crime. It is people who are poor. And so we thought, how do we figure out the system? And so we went to Oakland and looked at, and at the time, the payment plans in Oakland, it was like, you had to come in, you had to bring, a, like, I just like, you got to prove you're poor and come in the office. And so we just set up a system online. We um, scrubbed their system and we just started paying. We took risk in the beginning. We just paid people's tickets. And we, and it was not shocking to us that when you give people grace, they pay. So for those startup founders out there, particularly those black startup founders that are out there and they are finding themselves in a position where they have to switch gears, they have to switch lanes, they have to pivot, um, you know, mm -hmm. and they are personally passionate about what they were doing. But there's this failure thing. Yeah, um, they, they feel like they, totally met, they, may, they may feel like, feel like they failed. Like, what would you give them as a successful founder today who's had to make that change? Um, one, I would say the real issue is what do you think you have the capacity to be good at? And I realized someone could have done the business we were doing, but what I thought when I am best is when I feel committed and passionate about what we're doing. And I could never feel committed and passionate about something that I thought was harming people. 
And I think as you know, there's one question, which is, can capitalism even be good, right? Can you, can you do anything good in capitalism? And so if I was intent on solving that or understanding or figuring it out, there's no way I could do that and be in like the most harmful system and um, be like, I, what I realized is there was no private sector solution. And so what I would tell people is, I think whatever you are most committed to, most passionate about and most effective, that is what will be your uh, best uh, selling is the thing that you believe in the most of yourself and you feel the best about. And so for me, that just happened to be something else. But I think a pivot uh, speak is a, is a sign of strength, not a sign of weakness. Black Tech Green Money is a production of Blavity Afrotech on the Black Effect Podcast Network and iHeartMedia. It's produced by Morgan Devon and me, Will Lucas, with additional production support by Love Beach and Marissa Lewis. Special thank you to Micah Davis and Sakara Savanyan, you know, like the wine. And yes, that's his real name. Learn more about my guests and other tech disruptors and innovators at afrotech.com. The video version of this episode will drop to Black Tech Green Money on YouTube next week, so tap in. Enjoying Black Tech Green Money? Leave us a five-star rating on iTunes. Go get your money. Peace and love. Black Tech Green Money isn't just about telling the stories of successful black entrepreneurs. It's also about giving actionable and wealth-building strategies that help you protect the future of our communities. That's why we're pleased to be supported by State Farm Insurance. State Farm also believes that we must invest in our communities to achieve economic growth by sponsoring programs like the AXO, which rewards high school students for their academic achievements. State Farm believes that being better neighbors creates better communities. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. All right, so there we were, cruising through the new open-air zoo, when I realized that the park was closing in like 15 minutes. Luckily, we were in my Nissan Rogue. With its powerful VC turbo engine, well, we had time to see all the animals. Whoa! <laughs> and outrun a few! Drive the Nissan Rogue. AT&T connects and old to podcasts. Connect the alarm. Change the podcast you stream. Connect the snooze. Ten more minutes to dream. Connect the shower, lather up with the news, sports talk, comedians, or movie reviews. Connect with that three-hour philosophy show. Change the drive into work in traffic so slow. Connect the dishes to voices that glow. Thank you to the geniuses of spoken audio. Connect the stories, change your perspective. Connecting changes everything. AT&T.